You were here last Sunday. We looked at the start of Paul's ministry as the Lord Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. A lot happened in his lifetime and his ministry. Today we come to the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He gives a challenge as he is about to leave this world that we be faithful to preach the word. That's our challenge as a congregation, as individuals, that we would always be people who share and proclaim the truth of God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray as we have sung that your word would be planted deep within us. That that word would do its work in our lives today, showing us our need for Jesus, pointing us to him as our only hope. And then help us, Lord Jesus, to proclaim that message far and wide, that many more may come into a living relationship with you. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Second Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, of course. And so it has much to say to us about the Word of God. In fact, in every chapter of this book, Paul challenges Timothy in some way about his relationship to God's Word. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he tells him that he needs to guard that Word. Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Then he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Ah, What a picture of God's word. It is a treasure. Paul says to Timothy, guard that, that treasure. Chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself to approve to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus. Then we come to chapter 4. We have this 
this solemn charge to Timothy. Timothy, you need to preach the word. You need to be ready in season and out of season. That needs to be the focus of your life, sharing the truth of God's word. Now, this letter was written to an individual, to a young pastor. And yet this applies to all of us, right? Because we might not be proclaiming a a message from a pulpit, but we have the privilege to let our light shine, a privilege to proclaim the good news of Jesus wherever we go. So how are we to preach the word? Notice, first of all, we preach the word with great earnestness. There's no task that is more important to those in ministry than the task of preaching God's word. And Paul tells us right in the beginning of this passage why this is so, why this solemn charge is so vital, so important. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living in the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Now, when they think of the day of judgment, many people believe that that day is reserved only for those who are outwardly, blatantly evil, uh, people like uh, Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin, right? And people would say, well, of course they deserve to be judged. They, they look at what they've done. Look at all the lives that they've, they've, they've snuffed out of this world. But we need to remember that men like Hitler and Stalin aren't the only people who will experience the judgment of God. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus was asked a question. If there are only going to be few that will be saved, listen to his answer. Luke chapter 13. Verse 22 says, And he was passing through one city and village to another teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are going to be saved? Maybe this man had heard uh, Jesus on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, Few be there that find it. Few that enter the narrow gate. Many on the road to destruction. So are there just going to be few, he asked. And Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside, and you knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Now, who are the people Jesus is addressing here? They aren't the blatantly evil people of this world. They are actually people that were familiar with Jesus. Church people, perhaps, huh? Listen to what Jesus, or what they say to Jesus after the door is shut and, and Jesus says to those who are knocking, I don't know where you're from. Then Jesus said, you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. In other words, they'll say, how can you say you don't know where we are from? You know us. Jesus, you know us. We ate with you. We drank with you. We heard you preach. And Jesus, your preaching was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. You spoke with authority. You know us. Jesus, 
So there are likely religious people that Jesus is speaking to here, but they didn't really know Jesus. And the door of salvation was closed. I don't know if this surprises you or not, but there are going to be many religious people who will not enter heaven. These are the people that maybe came to communion, huh? We ate and drank with you. People who came to church, we, we heard the, the Word. We, we heard God's Word proclaimed. But they will not get into heaven because they didn't enter the narrow door. That's why Jesus said, strive to enter the narrow door. So what's the narrow door? What's the narrow door? The narrow door is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters in through me, shall be saved. Jesus is the narrow door. It's a narrow door because you don't get in as a group. Kids don't get in on their parents' shirt tails, right? We don't come in as a congregation. We come in one by one. It's a narrow door. One author said it's like a turnstile. I was at Menards the other day. I'd love to walk in arm in arm with my wife, but it's not wide enough. You go in one by one. It's a narrow entrance. And Jesus is a narrow door because you, you, you don't come in with your, your good works. You don't come in with all these things that you're going to, to offer to God and say, look what I've done. huh? Look what I've done. I remember my dad saying, he was preaching in a church one time and he was talking about the need to repent and there was a guy that met him at the door. Big guy. He said, are you telling, are you telling me that I need to repent? My dad says, no. I'm not telling you that. Jesus is telling you that. He said, you see that bell up there? Church bell. He said, I put that bell up there. As if that should count for something. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross we cling. That's our hope today. Jesus is the narrow door. He is the only way. And you can't say, I'll enter in another door. There is no other door. My uncle was an Episcopalian priest. Didn't know Jesus. And he argued with my grandfather. He said, Isaac, you haven't studied the Bible like I have. I went to seminary. Of course, he thought he knew everything. He knew nothing. And he used to say, Isaac, he said, there's 12 gates on the new Jerusalem. He said, you go your way, I'll go my way. And my grandpa said, there's only one way. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And I'm so thankful that my uncle came to know the Lord before he died because he was religious, right? He was in church. He went to communion, but if he did not enter the narrow door, Jesus would say, I don't know where you're from. That's why we must preach the word, because Jesus is coming again. We just confessed that in the Apostles' Creed, didn't we? That he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that ought to to give us a great earnestness. In the proclamation of God's Word, I charge you, Paul says, in the the presence of God and of Jesus, 
who is going to judge the living and the dead. Here's your charge. You preach the word. And I pray that this congregation will never, ever abandon that mission. Preaching the word of God. Proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Besides great earnestness, preach the word with great readiness. Verse 2 says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So what does Paul mean by that? In season and out of season. That's Paul's way of saying be ready at all times. When it seems to be convenient, absolutely be ready. When it doesn't seem to be convenient, still be ready. Ready to share the word. Uh, Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Now, there are times when it is clearly in season. Times when the door To witness is so wide open, you could drive a truck through it, right? You don't have to get down on your knees and say, "Um, Lord, should should I witness here? The guy asked me how to get to heaven. I I remember walking into the hospital many years ago. There was a guy in intensive care, just had a heart attack, had a mask on his face. I walk in the room and the first thing he says, I'm not ready to die. So I got down on my knees and said, Lord, no. That's in season, right? There's an open door and you present the gospel and praise God, that man, that man was saved. There are other times, however, when it seems to be very out of season. When it seems like this is not the right time. And Satan is sitting on your lap and saying, don't, don't, don't ruffle any feathers. Don't, don't share anything now. This just isn't the right time. Paul is the one who said this to Timothy. You be ready in season, out of season. Do you think he practiced what he preached? You better believe he did. There's a time in Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia came upon seeing him in the temple and began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him. And they cried out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law, and this place. And he's defiled this place. He had brought in a man who they thought was a Greek, and he shouldn't have been in the temple. And then verse 30 says, says, Then all the city was provoked. The people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and he immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort, and they, he spared Paul's life. They, 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 were, they were beating him and, and about to kill him. And, and were it not for the Roman authorities, his life would have been gone. Now, in season or out of season? That would be one of the out of season ones, right? So here's what Paul did, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? He said, You know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt. The Roman officer thought that's who he was. He said, no, I'm a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. 
And what does he do? He shares his testimony. He tells the crowd what had happened, how the Lord met him on the road to Damascus, and he shares the gospel to a crowd that wanted to kill him, that were beating on him. What better time to share your testimony, huh? So when Paul says, in season and out of season, he knew what he was talking about. Didn't matter where he was, he was ready to proclaim the word. That's the challenge we're given. And it is a challenge, isn't it? It is a challenge because there's times when we, in our own flesh, kind of back away and say, ah, maybe, maybe some other time. Do you know when, when, when the Lord wants you to say, does your heart kind of start beating a little faster? It's like, okay, this is the time. <laughs> okay, Lord, help me. <laughs> Great readiness. We need to be ready to proclaim the gospel. Thirdly, preach the word with great patience. Verse 2 goes on to say, Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. Are you a patient person by nature? Some of you are probably more so than, than others. It requires patience when we are sharing God's word, doesn't it? Because people are not going to always respond Right away, the first time you share with them. And there needs to be that willingness to keep planting, keep casting the seed, keep using those opportunities to share the word just patiently over and over proclaiming the message. When you plant grass seed, you have to water it, right? And you have to wait. There's a waiting time. And sometimes we're impatient when we share the gospel and they didn't respond. We keep watering that seed. And, and we have promises from God's Word about that, don't we? Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I'll tell you what, any pastor knows the, the, the comfort of those verses, right? God, it's your word. It's your message. We share it and we water that seed and you said, Lord, that you'll bring fruit through that. I praise God for that. I can't change anyone's heart, but God's word can. Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. I would encourage you to picture yourself this week that you got a bag of seed on your back. And everywhere you go, you're just throwing some here and throwing some there. and You never know when some of that seed is going to be planted in someone's heart and God is going to do something wonderful to save them. And maybe... Maybe when you stand before God one day, maybe you'll have someone come and say, you know what? 
you shared the word with me. And you don't know this, but God used it to bear fruit in my life. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Patience. We preach the word with great patience. Notice, fourthly, we preach the word with great carefulness. And here what I'm referring to is, is needing to be careful that we proclaim God's word, both law and gospel. As Lutherans, we understand that, right? We ought to. We ought to embrace that, that we proclaim law and gospel. I think we see that here in the text. In verse 2, he talks about reproving and rebuking. The law of God reproves, doesn't it? The law of God corrects. It it rebukes us. And, And why do we need to preach the law? Because that prepares us for the gospel. There are people that don't think they're that bad. At least not bad enough that God would ever judge us. Paul says, I did not know that coveting is wrong unless you would have said in your word, you shall not covet. So, so the law has a way of, of preparing us to see how much we need Jesus. My grandfather told my dad many times, he said, son, you've got to get them lost before you get them saved. People don't realize they need a Savior unless... The law of God breaks us, right? The law of God crushes us. Kent Hughes tells about John Stott. Some of you are familiar with John Stott. As a boy, uh, through the ministry of a man by the name of E.J.H. Nash. I've often wondered by guys who have, you know, three names and then you, you don't even know what they are, just like, You don't really like your names or what? E.J.H. Nash. He was affectionately called Bash because when he preached, he he hit you. And so John Stott was um, one of the men that that was impacted by this E.J.H. Nash. And Stott said this. He said, His letters to me often contained rebuke, for I was a wayward young man and needed to be disciplined. In fact, so frequent were his admonitions at one period that whenever I saw his familiar writing on an envelope, he said I needed to pray and prepare myself for a half an hour before I felt ready to open it. (laughs) No wonder they called him Bash, huh? (laughs) He gave it to him. But God used that in the life of John Stott as well as in the life of many others who who went into ministry. Because they were brought to the place where they saw how much they needed Jesus. And that is when the gospel is precious, isn't it? When you realize that you are lost. When you know that you stand guilty before God, that's when the gospel is precious. And the word exhort here... It means to called alongside to help. It's it's related to the word paraclete, the the word for the Holy Spirit, uh, called alongside to help. And through the through the gospel, then we find help. That's where we find encouragement. That's where we find comfort. So it isn't law 
or gospel, it's law and gospel with great carefulness. We, need, we cannot abandon that because we live in a culture today that doesn't want to hear the law. Who are you to tell me the way to live my life? That's the culture we live in today. And not only should you be tolerant with me in what I believe and the way I live my life, you should embrace it. We cannot go down that road. Never down that road. Preach the word with great carefulness. Then finally, preach the word with great endurance. Paul describes what ministry will be like in the future from his day. And he doesn't mislead anyone by painting a rosy picture. He says in verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't want to hear it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, interesting picture, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now Paul says from his day the time will come. Could we say from our day, our perspective, the time has come? I think so. I think we're in that period of history where people don't want sound teaching. They just want their ears tickled. God loves you and you're fine. No worries. Live in sin, he'll forgive. doesn't matter. Embrace whatever lifestyle you want. Live any way you want to live. Jesus loves you. No repentance. No call to... Follow him. People do not endure sound doctrine. And those who preach the truth are accused of being hateful, right? Of being intolerant. And those kind of people must be silenced. We're there, aren't we? We're there. Silence them. Persecute them. Make them pay for it in one way or another. So what do we do? Paul says in verse 5, But you, in contrast to them, because there will be teachers that will, that will teach them this. Because Paul says, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. There will be teachers that will say, it's just fine. Don't worry about it. God loves you. Paul says, but you, in contrast to that, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. There will be hardship. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. What does an evangelist do? He preaches law and gospel, right? Fulfill your ministry. But Paul says, when things get tough, you don't throw in the towel and quit. There's a race that we've been given to run, and you need to run it till the end. That's the picture that Paul gives then at the end of this section. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Notice what he could say about his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved 
is appearing. So in spite of the difficulty, and Paul faced his share, in spite of the suffering he went through, he continued. He ran his race until the end. He said, the time has come now, but I've, I've, I've finished the course. Uh, and he endured because he knew that the end of the race involved glory. <laughs> he had an eternal focus. Yeah, a challenging life now, but... But he ends this section by saying, there, there, is, there, there is a waiting for me, the crown of, of righteousness that the Lord will award to me on that day. We have a hymn in our hymnal that describes some of the difficulties in, uh, in mission work. It's the hymn, So Send I You. Are you familiar with that hymn? So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown. To bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to bind the bruised and broken or wandering souls to work, to weep, to wake. To bear the burdens of a world aweary, so send I you to suffer for my sake. So send I you to loneliness and longing with heart a-hungering for the loved and known. Forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one, so send I you to know my life alone. And each of those verses in that hymn describes the costs that can be there when we're willing to, to, to follow as God leads us. It, it can be challenging. And as I was reading about the history of this hymn, I, I found something interesting I didn't know before. Margaret Clarkson wrote this hymn, the words to this song, when she was 22 years old. And later she rewrote this hymn. So there's another version of this hymn. And here's her explanation. She said, some years later, after more life experience and contact with real missionaries, I realized that the poem was really very one-sided. It told only of the sorrows and privations of the missionary call and none of its triumphs. So I wrote another song in the same rhythm to, so that verses could be used interchangeably, setting forth the glory and the hope of the missionary calling. Did any of you know that? That she rewrote that? I didn't know that until this week. We're going to sing it in a minute, but listen to the words. So send I you... By grace made strong to triumph, or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear, and, then, and in that name to conquer. So send I you my victory to win. So send I you to take to souls in bondage the word of truth that sets the captive free, to break the bonds of sin, to loose death's fetters. So send I you to bring the lost to me. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy and grief, my perfect peace and pain. To prove my power, my grace, my promised presence, so send I you eternal fruit to gain. So send I you to bear my cross with patience, and then one day with joy to lay it down, to hear my voice, <laughs> well done, my faithful servant. Come share my throne, my kingdom. And my crown. That's what Paul is saying at the end of this passage, isn't it? When he came to the end of the race, what did he hear? 
Probably something like this. Well done, my faithful servant. Come share my throne, my kingdom, and my crown. And that's what we wait for, isn't it? We, we wait for the day when Jesus comes again. We stand before Him and He says, well done. Good job. You've been faithful. You've run the race. You've finished the course. You've kept the faith. Come share my throne, my kingdom, and my crown. Father, I pray that we would be faithful above all to proclaim the truth of your word, in season and out of season, regardless of the cost, focusing on the day when you come again and we stand before you, and we will say it, it it was worth it all. It is worth it all when we see Jesus. Lord, encourage us today to be faithful to you and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?